up a little bit late. That was my fault. Oh, it's the fault of the Piccadilly line, actually. It's stuck at Arsenal for some reason. Anyway, um, we're here now, and thank you very much for coming in on such a rainy, horrible day. Um, this is about the future. The novel is the novel dead. Where are we with it? Um, and the th our three panellists all have very different positions, which I hope they will hold and argue without coming to blows, ideally. And then we'll open it up for questions from you. Um, so let me just, and each person's going to make an opening deposition about their position. Um, to the far right is David Shields, who um, actually has written three novels. Were they published in the UK, your, three, your novels? I think so, no. No. So came to, came to attention last year with a book called um, Reality Hunger, which he described as an anti-manifesto manifesto. manifesto. Um, and it, posit it raised an awful lot of discussion, start opening in The Guardian. I'm the literary editor of The Guardian. And it opened in The Guardian with a big piece by Zadie Smith talking about the lyric essay, which is one of the new forms that it, it proposed. Um, he, it's, it's been, I mean, it has been controversial, hasn't it? We did a platform at Hay together in the summer, and he was howled down on copyright grounds, which was quite interesting. Oh. I hadn't expected that one at all. Yeah, <laughs> Lots of publishers feeling very threatened by this, ma this manifesto. And he will talk more about the detail of it, and you feel free to ask questions. Um, and he's since written, his most recent book is called The Thing About Life is One Day You'll Be Dead, and it mixes um, memoir of his 90-odd-year-old um, father, his own midlife state, and ruminations about mortality. So it's taking forward the idea of a sort of hybrid work. Um, to his left <laughs> it's Robert Hudson who is a first, um, whose first novel Kilburn Social Club I actually didn't read and the reason I didn't read which I confessed to him just a few minutes ago was because it's about football I thought and I don't read novels about football but actually it is a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful lit very literary novel and I would recommend it to including girlies <coughs> like me who don't read that sort of thing it's, um, he will, he will, we will explain more about it and I'll ask him at some point to do a little bit of a reading for it so you can you get a bit of a sense of the quality of the writing and um, to my right is Jeff Dyer who is, um, uh, you probably all have read bits of Jeff Dyer's work, this and that, from him over the years. Um, his most recent book was a collection of essays called Wait, uh, Working the Room, um, and his most recent novel, do yeah, you call it a novel, is Jeff, was Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanese. Jeff being spelt J-E-F-F, -F, unlike Jeff, who is G-E-O-F, draw your own conclusions. Um, so let's start with... Um, David Shields, um, will, will you talk for a little bit about where you're coming from? Sure. Thanks, Claire. Um, I'll sort of try to set out a few of the main propositions that the book tries to argue. And the first one is that, that we're obsessed with reality precisely because we experience almost none of it in our actual lives. So that we, we're obsessed with reality in the art that we're drawn to. It's my contention, uh, my contention that we're that, that we live in an extraordinarily simulated and mediated and artificial culture and as a result of that that we're extraordinarily bored and extraordinarily numb and that more fiction, more dream world just strikes me as a kind of, of bubble wrap Kafka said famously, a, a book should be an axe to break the frozen sea within us. And 
Obviously, this isn't true for most people, but for me, and I guess I would argue for some of my fellow travelers, that more seamless fiction is not going to be that axe to break the frozen sea within us. As, as Claire said, I started out as a novelist. I wrote three novels that were published in the 80s and 90s in the US. And a certain point at which the form was simply no longer doing it for me. And the, the kind of work I'm, I'm drawn to, I think this, this might be, I, think, I don't know if I'm stealing this from Jeff or not, but it's that I'm, I'm drawn toward work that has the thinnest possible membrane between life and art. Is, is that from you? It sounds a little like... He's it. terribly arty. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> that phrase sounds sort of it's, uh, diarian <laughs> somehow. But, but anyway, I'm, um, David Foster Wallace said in an, an interview many years ago that, you know, that we're existentially alone on the planet, that I can't know what you're thinking and feeling, and you can't know what I'm thinking and feeling. And the very best writing constructs a bridge across the abyss of human loneliness. The kinds of work that I'm drawn toward, that I'm trying to write, that I read, that I teach, is work that absolutely f foregrounds the question of how the writer solves or doesn't solve the problem of being alive. Samuel Johnson said that uh, a book should either allow us to escape existence or teach us how to endure existence. And overwhelmingly, it seems to me, novels of the kind that are acclaimed and popular tend to be only allowing us to escape existence. They're not really teaching us how to endure existence. Um, <clears throat> so that probably sort of segues into my next point, that, that for me, the novel is to a very large degree dead. Think of the four key elements of a novel, plot, setting, character, and pace, the, the extraordinarily glacial pace at which most novels are conducted strikes me as completely discordant with the pace of contemporary life. Um, the ways in which character tends to be analyzed in an essentially Freudian way isn't taking advantage of what we know via cognitive science and neuroscience and genetics. Novels tend to enormously privilege setting and foreground setting in a way that to me does not comport with the ways in which where we live matters less and less in an extremely digitized culture. And probably most importantly, the ways in which novels are coherent, the ways in which novels tie things up, make the ends meet. You know, that it's, it's as if God were still in his heaven and we still believed in a deistic universe and we believed that that life made sense, that in, in many ways it seems to me the novels that are most acclaimed, say Jonathan Franzen's Freedom or The Corrections or Ian McEwan's novels are essentially honored because they offer a kind of 
nostalgia for the verities. They're essentially barely disguised 19th century novels that update the references so people have cell phones, but they're in every possible way from setting to character to pace to linear plots. They're, they're essentially 19th century novels. And you think of the other f forms of art, music and visual art and architecture and film and video. These forms evolve. Art, like science, prog progresses. Forms serve the culture. Forms die. And yet somehow in the literary realm that we have as our models, uh, these extremely antiquated forms. I mean, obviously Tolstoy and Dickens and Flaubert were great writers. They wrote 150 years ago, though. And it's odd, you know, that we don't, in, in music, endlessly rewrite Beethoven's Third Symphony in the visual arts that were not painting 16th century royalty. And yet, strangely, in the literary realm, um, essentially, 19th century novels are still very much the gold standard. The kinds of books I tend to argue for tend to be works of, of, of literary or poetic or collagistic nonfiction that use the nonfiction frame as a way to foreground contemplation. Instead of defining nonfiction downward as straightforward journalism or straightforward memoir, they use the nonfiction frame as a way to, to question the very premises of nonfiction. They use nonfiction to worry the most, the most essential human questions. What's real? What's true? What's knowledge? What's memory? What's a self? How much can a self know about the other? Nonfiction in the hands of extraordinarily thoughtful writers can be, to me, the most exciting philosophical form from, uh, you know, Blaise Pascal's Pensées to, you know, um, to Jeff Dyer's Out of Sheer Rage. I mean, they're, I'm, I'm very interested in, in works of nonfiction that define nonfiction upward as an essentially philosophical form. <clears throat> A few last points that, that one of the things that reality hunger tries to argue and to embody is that a primary, perhaps the primary creative contemporary act is self-conscious, conscious, conspicuous appropriation. That again, in, in music, that, that rap has been remixing and sampling and, and mashing up for 30 years, you know, in visual art ever since Duchamp and perhaps, perhaps earlier visual art has been endlessly reframing work. And I'm trying to urge my literary brethren to catch up with the other arts and not use again, uh, to me, uh, a sort of desiccated 19th century model as the kind of default gold standard for contemporary writing. Um, I also argue and try to embody in the book the idea that 
that from the beginning of recorded civilization, creativity and plagiarism have been virtually synonymous from Roman sculptors copying directly Greek sculptors to uh, Tchaikovsky's um, 1812 overture hijacking the French national anthem to um, Monet's, um, uh, Monet's Olympia you know, being a direct copy of, of Titian's Venus of Urbino to the 6,000 lines of Shakespeare's Henry VI, parts one through three, of those, those, of, of those 6,000 lines, <coughs> 4,000 of them are directly taken from Holland's Heads Chronicles to James Joyce saying, I'm quite content to go down to posterity as a scissors and paste man. We would say now as a, a, a cut and paste man, but same difference. And Picasso saying, all art is theft. That we live, as I say, in this extraordinarily digital culture, and it's just extraordinarily preposterous that contemporary writers are not allowed to remix and mash up and sample in the way in which writers in other fields are. are. That there are three crucial legal concepts, fair use, public domain, and transformation. And to me, it's crucial to see that so long as you are transfiguring what you're copying, that you could and should be able to make that gesture so that my book is an attempt to to obliterate the distinctions between fiction and nonfiction, try to overturn the laws regarding appropriation, try to create new forms for the the twenty for the twenty first century. A very modest goal. So <laughs> thank you. With that I'll stop. Thanks. Thank you very much. Okay, now we you have to now do make the case for fiction. You've yeah. got a job on your hands. Yeah, it doesn't seem <laughs> tough. Uh, yeah, I sort of, I'm slightly uncomfortable with my position as, an, as I was saying earlier, as an antagonist in this uh, debate, as the person speaking for traditional history and novels, which is what those are the things I want to write. So obviously, uh, I am clearly the antagonist in in a certain way, uh, because I really enjoyed Reality Hunger. It uh, it is self-advertised as a provocation and an exaggeration and uh, it definitely did make me think uh, very deeply and seriously about the writing I'm engaged on at the moment. Uh, but obviously I don't agree with it uh, in lots of ways. I, I don't agree with some of the uh, most often repeated assertions in it. Uh, they're Distant, distance to a certain extent by being uh, present by being quotations, but they're repeated very often. Uh, that all writing is equally fictional. Uh, or, or the only way to be producing challenging new art is to be uh, recreating the form or to be sort of working in uh, some fiction, non-fiction border country. Uh, part lyric essay, part memoir. Uh, partly, I don't think we at the moment need a manifesto to get people to write like this. This is a uh, self-featuring narratives, uh, the dominant form of literary journalism uh, and uh, literary non-fiction. 
I myself am not interested in writing in this way. I don't particularly like writing about myself. Uh, but in homage to Reality Hunger, just this once today, I'm going to present my, you know, my response is basically I'm going to present in the form of a memoir. Uh, and uh, my response is governed partly by the fact that I'm uh, a novelist uh, of a fairly traditional kind, I suppose, but more deeply by the fact that I'm a historian. Uh, I love reading fiction, but I was never interested in studying it and analysing it, partly out of fear that I would uh, lose my enjoyment of it. Uh, which I, you know, I'm not saying that that's what happened to David uh, uh, or Jeff, but <laughs> but but as as I jogged along through my history degree, I uh, I got increasingly frustrated with. Uh, academic discourse and my own inability to say interesting things clearly. Uh, everything uh, was uh, hedged around with all of these uh, caveats and doubts and I thought that I probably had to get out of academic history if I ever wanted to say, learn how to say things, uh, to learn how to communicate the things that I thought were important. And so I decided to take a break to learn to communicate better and the way I did that was to learn to write better uh, and for a wider audience and so I started as a journalist and for the last decade I've reviewed non-fiction. I've reviewed several hundred books because for most of that time I've been the Sunday Times' default, uh, default history and current affairs uh, reviewer uh, for paperbacks and uh, there was a very interesting thing that came out of that. In 2000 most of, the non most of the history books I was reading had been written and conceived of in the uh, Fukuyama post-historical present. Now, obviously, people didn't agree with Fukuyama exactly quite, but the tone of those books was very much that the big stuff's been dealt with. Uh, we're writing about the minutiae of location, of decision-making. Uh, that's what those books were focused on. Then came 9-11, and subsequently Iraq and Afghanistan, and there was a shift in social and historical consciousness that started to become very clear in the books that I started to read probably in the middle of the last decade. Uh, and the focus uh, then became, and to a large extent remains, though it's shifting again, what constitutes effective governance, uh, uh, how people have historically got stuff done on the ground. Uh, that was the prevailing meta-concern, uh, whatever the uh, ostensible subject matter of the book. You know, the book might be about Victorian England, or the book might be about uh, uh, pre-war uh, America, or whatever it is. Uh, but the actual concern was how stuff is done on the ground. And I'm schematizing, obviously. Uh, but the shift was clear, and this is why every generation... Uh, this is just basic historiography. This is why every generation gets a new definitive Hitler biography. It's not that we, uh, uh, it's not that the facts have changed, uh, though obviously we learn new things. It's just that the things we care about have. Uh, and history is about connecting facts to the world in uh, as objective a way as possible. Now, historians know that they can't achieve objectivity. They knew this long before uh, postmodern literary theorists. Uh, but they have uh, chosen uh, part of the discipline of being a historian is choosing not to retreat into uh, uh, the how, which a lot of the quotations in Reality Hunger echo, that because everything is subjective, uh, everything is equally subjective. 
uh, being a historian is, uh, or part of it, is refusing to throw your hands in the air at this difficulty. Uh, to write history, you have to make decisions uh, all the time. You have to choose between competing truths uh, and make judgments. Uh, you have to basically exercise a certain form of authority. And these are things which the modern world, and especially academia, uh, uh, and don't get me wrong, lots of academic history, uh, and it's not a, uh, they, these, these are things that uh, these, the modern world finds difficult, exercising authority, and so do I, don't get me wrong, I'm hard as it may be to believe part of the modern world. Uh, and telling a story is similarly uh, a thing where you exercise judgment. Uh, I like stories, I like reading them, and I like writing them. And uh, the quotations in Reality Hunger repeatedly say that traditional novels are dead and the only way to make art is to uh, break the form. But obviously I don't agree. And the crucial reason is that I think that by writing the best novel I can write now, uh, I'm writing stories that no one can have written before. Uh, just as historians write histories for their time, uh, so do storytellers tell stories. And that's why Jonathan Franzen's book is not... Uh, that's why The Corrections is not a 19th century novel. And it couldn't have been written in the 19th century. And anyone reading it knows that. It's, uh, it's to a certain extent, an old form. But he is writing with, with as Jonathan Franzen, a man of his age. And that is part of the story. And similarly, polemicists write polemics uh, for their period. Uh, one of the things that struck me most about reality hunger as a historian is that it is so very much of this moment. Uh, it's a fusion. It crosses lines. It speaks of the unutterable complexity of uh, the real in a complicated, shifting form which echoes that complexity. Uh, that is, for want of a better word, its, its message. And, you know, we all, and the world is very complicated. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but there are other ways to talk and write about it. And personally, I think there is a very real danger that works which embrace subjectivity and this problem in a less skillful way than Reality Hunger. I strongly recommend you read Reality Hunger. Let me make that absolutely clear. Uh, in books which have a less clear thesis... Uh, run very serious risk of becoming unmoored. Uh, you can't tell me I'm wrong, I've already told you I'm subjective. It's, uh, it's a very interesting moment in uh, the history of our relationship with facts. Uh, the world is so complicated that we're sort of running away from them. Uh, for me, uh, the difficult thing is to say, uh, not to say, here's my personal view, it can't be wrong, it's to make choices. I am writing at the moment uh, a historical novel, and the issues involved in that keep me up at night as a historian. I desperately don't want to be one of those historical novelists who twist, uh, the, who twist history into sanitised, untruthful shapes. I believe you can set things in the past and not do that. Uh, I think you can be fair to the past, uh, but I worry about it all the time. Uh, the sort of fundamental issue I face is whether to use uh, real names in uh, my story for my characters. They're based on real people and things that real people were doing and saying and writing. Uh, but I'm making them do things they didn't do. Uh, at the moment I'm keeping the names uh, because I think I'd enjoy reading them more that way. Uh, I think it's more interesting. But uh, personally, as a reader, but uh, personally as a reader I would want to find out what was real and what's made up and I'll provide an appendix to help people with that. Uh, I'm less worried about the other thing I'm writing, which is an, uh, 
epistolary equine romance between the uh, <laughs> the gay horses of Wellington and Napoleon. I think that I think that, I think that, I think that, I think that people can make their uh, their own historical judgments about that. I, I just want to finish with this. That there's a segment near the end of Reality Hunger which says that an earlier generation of novelists was fundamentally concerned with a status and the current generation is more concerned with uh, communication and to a large extent I agree with that. But it made me think immediately uh, just based on my recent uh, arts consumption of uh, the King's Speech and the Social Network. Uh, the King's Speech is full of the problems of status and it's a traditional old-fashioned narrative which is clearly untrue by various measures. Uh, uh, the social network is all about communication and it's told in uh, this back-and-forth way which ultimately leaves certain things unknown. And uh, its narrative style is very much of the moment, for what it's worth. I preferred the social network. Uh, but the fact that both have been such artistic and popular successes shows that the rules for historical fiction... Uh, very much like the rules for other fiction, are pretty much nonsense. Uh, each work we produce is sui generis. Uh, every writer has uh, their own aim, and the need to be accurate and the need to uh, display research are different in every case. Uh, you can only judge the thing by the thing. Uh, the book I'm writing at you know, the Great Tuna Western, which is uh, a title my agent has expressly <laughs> forbidden me to use in public, uh, is... Uh, it features taxidermy, and there's uh, a brilliant taxidermological term uh, for this uh, ineffable totality, this the irreducible rightness of a thing uh, that you might not be able to describe, but you know it when you see it. And uh, this term is an incredibly useful one to have in one's mind when discussing this, but it's a very difficult one to talk about in public because this term, which is of old use, uh, it is shared with another the word is shared with another the word is a rude word basically uh, it, it, it is the jizz of a thing I've, you know, uh, so it won't catch on but uh, I think that works from all over the reality spectrum can achieve this rightness uh, personally as a reader I think it is easier to achieve uh, in our current environment and with, our, with how we feel. I think it is easier to achieve with a memoir or a lyric essay. Uh, and so personally, I value the other forms more. Uh, and also, it's just, you know, uh, either where someone has to put a convincing case that something happened or has to persuade people to uh, suspend their disbelief. Uh, but, but that is just my subjective preference. Thank you very much. Jeff. Um, I feel very much like, I mean, I heard this, this is how I, I, I feel about this, a story I heard in New York whereby um, a wife went to, to see the rabbi and said, my husband is just so awful, and she tells him what, what he does, and the rabbi says, God, you're right, he really is awful. And then a little while later, the, the husband goes and says, you know, my wife, she's just dreadful. And the rabbi says, you're right, she really is awful. And the rabbi's assistant says to the rabbi, but you can't, you can't say that. You can't say both, the, you know, the husband's right and the wife's right. And the rabbi, of course, responds, you know what? You're right. 
<laughs> and this is how I feel, actually. I mean, uh, I feel that they're, they're both right. Um, <laughs> I feel mine is uh, a genuinely pluralistic uh, pos position, um, in, in other words. Um, I've jokingly uh, called David in print the sort of anti-novel jihadist. Uh, of course, his, uh, the great thing about reality hunger is that it's so much more nuanced than a manifesto tends to be. Um, I'm hugely in agreement with David, and I think this is partly because we're, well, I think we're pretty much the same age. And I think it's actually very interesting to read David's reality hunger um, alongside uh, the book that's just been published here called The Thing About Life is that one day you'll be dead, which, to summarize it in the most brutal way, it sort of says really that irrespective of all the things that make us individual, broadly speaking, we all conform to, we're, we all, you know, we're all just conforming to these actuarial norms that, you know, unless you're really unlucky, you know, you're, this bit stops functioning at pretty much the, the, the same age, all, all this kind of stuff. I mean, forgive me for that ludicrous thing. And it seems to me you can extend this beyond the realm of the biological. And the thing is that really, I think, sometime in your, how, how old are you, Robert? 37. Right, okay, great. Uh, because I think you find that in your, in, if, you're, if, if you're a man uh, in your, and you get into your 40s, your appetite for fiction starts, starts dropping off, really. Um, and I think this is, we can, we can explain this really in a very, very straightforward way that, um, you know, when you're, typically I think people go through this great phase of reading, you know, classic books in their late teens or early 20s, and especially if, like me, you come from a very limited kind of social milieu, then each book you read at that stage represents such an enormous extension of your understanding of morals, of psychology, of behavior, of everything, really. You know, if you think, you know, let's, say, let's suppose you read, uh, you read Anna Karenin, and it's, it's, let's suppose it's like the 20th great book you read. I mean, the, 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 addition that that makes to your understanding of the world is so enormous. Okay, fast forward till the time you're sort of, you're in your, your late 30s, and then actually the kind of, uh, what, what you're learning from each, from each new work, great work of literature, irrespective of its merit, is going to be incrementally uh, greatly reduced. So I think there is, if you like, a sort of actuarial basis to what David's saying. This is something that, that there's a kind of curve that we, that we all experience uh, as a reader. Um, I think there's a, a mistake which one, one can put this slightly differently and ludicrously, which is to say, actually, compared with Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, you know, the, these books that are being written now are, are not any good. And I'm told anecdotally that when John Bailey was the chair of the Booker judges, or whichever year it was, in a sense, to him, it was a matter of relative indifference as to whether, uh, as, as to who won, because compared with the great, you know, uh, the, compared with Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, really there wasn't much to choose between James Kelman and Alan Hollinghurst. That was, I mean, again, to summarise his position ludicrously. Um, and, of course, that, that, is, uh, that, that is absolutely ridiculous, because I think... Uh, uh, great novels will continue to will all will will continue to be uh, written uh, what, in spite of whatever sort of crises and stuff are going on. Uh, Robert is, and one of the reasons for this is because we have this age-old, uh, you know, hunger for 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 narrative for storytelling, um, and 
Really, I mean, David and I spoke on a, a panel about a, a subject like this and, uh, in, in Edinburgh, and it was a rather peculiar one because I, I well, I'll, I'll explain a bit more about this. I was saying that uh, for me, you know, one of the very greatest uh, English novelists now writing, it would be Alan Hollinghurst. And you might say that his, the content is, is, is sort of newish. Uh, it, you know, it's gay, let's say. But really, he's a very, he's a very traditional writer but doing it at such a sort of high level of excellence that I realized, you know, I actually, I'm, it made me realize how content I was to be reading uh, quite uh, traditional forms. And then it, the debate became rather ludicrous because I, for some reason, I just quoted one line of it where he's, the character is deciding what kind of, uh, uh, what kind of swim, swimwear to take on holiday and he d does, isn't sure whether to, uh, to wear sort of baggy, uh, baggy sort of short type things or he says, or, or should I wear my knob flaunting speedos? And I said, you know, that's really all I want from fiction, actually. And then, in a weird way, David, me, and Gabby Wood, we all decided that all we wanted from fiction was knob-flaunting speedos. Uh, the problem is, I think, so often, the need to, uh, to keep the story going, uh, unless you're working at that level of near genius that Alan Hollinghurst is, you tend not to get that, that, uh, that de degree of precision. I think it's not for nothing that Jonathan Franzen has been so hailed as, uh, you know, as a supreme novelist because for me when I was reading uh, um, the corrections and to a lesser degree uh, freedom it was a real reminder for me of the kind of uh, absolute uh, involvement in, in a narrative that um, that I used to get. It seems to me that it's that his incredible ability to to actualize things and to maintain that incredibly high level of linguistic precision throughout. That's that for me is what is Tolstoyan uh, about um, about Franzen. But and uh, I, I think you'll agree, I'm making a great. Uh, I'm really managing to sit on this fence very 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 cleverly. Uh, to, I, I would agree with with Robert that I think actually. Um, uh, you know, people now are different to the way they were in Balzac's time. So although I completely agree with David that the form, the form of something like the corrections is, is very uh, traditional, I think what he notices, and this is so important, is that there's an entirely different structure of feeling that pertains now because of all the kind of forces at work that David has described in, in, in the novel. So his, his people aren't the same. They're not, they're not wired in the same way that Balzac's or, or Dickens are. Um, in a way, then, I've been describing what, I'm, what, what my feelings are as a reader. And I'll just say now something uh, about what I'm up to uh, as, as a writer. I mean, what I... Uh, so I, I, I'm not, I'm not anti-novel. What I'm anti is this rather parochial assumption, which I think uh, we get a lot of here in Britain, which is that the novel is the real testing ground if, you're, if, you're to be, if you want to be an imaginative <coughs> writer. Now, I, I, what, I, what I'm against is that the way that that excludes so many other kinds of writing. For example, when there, if there's any kind of um, article in the paper about the great stylists, so of course we would say Martin Amis quite correctly, or excuse me, Rushdie or whoever else. What I'm struck by is the way that it doesn't, it seems not to occur to people that there might be stylists working in a completely, you know, outside the novel. I mean, how you can have any kind of assessment of what constitutes great style without referring to Perry Anderson is absolutely beyond me. It seems to me that Perry Anderson is one of the supreme stylists of our time. 
Uh, there's a, a Margaret York, um, I never know how to pronounce her name, either Margaret Yorkenar or Margaret Yorsenar, writing, I guess, in the 1930s or 40s. She says, in our time, the novel devours all other forms. One is almost forced to use it as a medium of expression. That is absolutely no longer the case. Uh, I think there's an increasing uh, growth in this kind of stuff that is, that is neither one thing nor the other. Uh, and this, for me, is where some of the most uh, interesting writing is, is being made. And surprise, surprise, that's what I do. Um, it's, um, there's a, another sort of assumption, I think, which is that, um, in a way, we go to non... We, what we're looking for in non-fiction is the content, really. Uh, to put it very broadly, I mean, if you imagine that the two poles that define British... Uh, publishing life. We've got the Booker Prize for fiction on the one hand, the Samuel Johnson for non-fiction on the other. And if you like, the classic uh, Samuel Johnson book is something like Samuel, um, uh, Anthony Beaver's Stalingrad. You know, you want to learn about Stalingrad? Here, you'll learn a lot about it. Of course, it's gripping, it's brilliantly written, all the rest of it. I'm very interested in the idea of, a non of the non-fiction work of art, a non-fiction book which is defined not by its content but by style, all this kind of stuff. Uh, in my arrogant way, I was absolutely convinced that my history of photography, the ongoing moment, really deserved to be, it should have been uh, eligible at least for the Booker Prize because I actually felt that this history of photography was far more original, uh, inventive and all this kind of stuff, which, is, which one would have thought would be part of the idea of the novel, um, I felt it was much more novel than many so-called novels. And the final point I'd make, I think, is that um, we're all familiar with Martin Amos's war against cliché, but that's, uh, his idea of a cliché is something which is, you know, along the lines of raining cats and dogs. It's a, it's a cliché at the level of, of the sentence. I think it's a great shame, really, that so many uh, novels are actually conceived at the level of cliché. There is a template of what people think a novel uh, should do, and you can f feel so often. This is where I'm absolute, where I absolutely share David's impatience. You can feel that the material's expressive potential is being straitjacketed by a really unthinking uh, adherence to the uh, uh, to the idea of what uh, a novel should be. Uh, sorry, a couple of postscript things now. Uh, in terms of this, uh, you know, this genre-breaking, neither one thing nor the other type books, I, mean, I think I'm, I'm getting a sense now that actually that is itself becoming a kind of um, a genre uh, of its own with its own kind of hidden, concealed conventions and stuff. One can see actually that the, 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 uh, the genre-breaking book could itself become a, a, a kind of cliched form. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on this now, but I hope at some point we do come back to this thing of copyright, which, uh, um, as Claire was saying, people at Hay um, went sort of crazy about this. Um, that story I told at the beginning about the rabbi, I came across that. It was some, something somebody told at a, a conference I went to in New York about uh, fair usage and copyright. I only went because I was invited and I like a free trip, but it turned out to be absolutely the most stimulating weekend of my life because this thing of copyright and uh, and all this stuff is absolutely at the heart of uh, of what creativity means uh, in the 21st century uh, you all know this uh, i'm sure i mean i i bet many of you 
have seen uh, a part of Christian Marclay's uh, The Clock, either at the Hayward Gallery presently or when it was at White Cube. This, of course, is the most original, mind-blowingly clever, inventive or, uh, piece of art that, I, that I've seen for a long time. And, of course, it's composed entirely of bits grabbed from other, from, from, from other people. Uh, I, uh, I actually think one of the... I, I really believe that um, David's book was uh, infinitely more original than uh, so many novels that were published uh, last year, even though uh, uh, quite a lot of bits of it, as people complained, uh, were pinched from other people. Of course, the people who complained weren't the people from whom he'd pinched. I suspect they were the people who wished that he'd pinched from but didn't quite make the cut. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Um, very good. Well, there we have it. Um, now, I, I'm going to, um, uh, uh, before we open it out to you, and you'll all have your own questions, ask a, a series of questions just to create a bit of a structure. And I'm also going to, um, I've asked them each, I've produced three pieces of evidence from the, th from, the, from the works of all three of them, and I'm going to ask them to read them so that you have some illustration as well. And I'd like David to start by reading... Um, Pa paragraph 379 from <laughs> Reality Hunger. Um, this is, um, it's, uh, I don't know whether you said it's a, Reality Hunger is in 610 paragraphs, is it? Something like that, 620. So, yes. And this, this sets out, so the, the first thing I'd like to um, address using this as evidence is the idea of the false edifice of the novel. And so you've sure. got to re respond to it, you too. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> listen, right. listen carefully. Mm, okay. so, this is, yeah, this is uh, a paragraph or two from about two-thirds of the way through the book. I can't remember, I must admit, if, if I wrote this or if I'm <laughs> catching it from someone else. I think it's, as with almost every paragraph in the book, it's on uh, a, discom a, a discombobulating remix of myself and someone else. As Stephen Frears, the director of High Fidelity, worked to translate the best moments of the Nick Hornby novel on which the movie was based. He found to his surprise that the best moments were the voiceovers, especially the direct speeches of Rob Gordon, John Cusack, to the camera. Frears said what we realized was that the novel was a machine to get to 12 crucial speeches in the book about romance and art and music and list making and masculine distance and a masculine drive for art and a masculine difficulty with intimacy. This is the case for most novels. You have to read 700 pages to get the handful of insights that were the reason the book was written in the first place. And the apparatus of the novel is there as a huge, elaborate, overbuilt stage set. Right, Robert, what do you think of that? Uh, well, there's, there's two th <coughs> basically two things. One, if it's a good book, you can like, you can like the journey. I usually do. I, when, to obsessively talk about myself again, uh, when I wrote The Kilburn Social Club, I wrote a deliberately long book because I like, long, I like reading long books and I really wanted to produce a coherent, gripping, long story, which is one of the things that I like reading. So you can like the long thing that those 12 uh, moments are, are part of. But I think probably more pertinently, 
is that if this is a good book, if it's a well-written book, then you don't get those 12 minutes. Those are the, you can say those are the 12 moments that you're reading the book for. You can't get them without the, if, it's, if those are 700 well-written pages, you don't get them without the 700 pages. The 700 pages uh, contextualize those 12 moments. They give you the sense of the character, they give you the sense of the moment, they give you uh, the investment in what's going on for those 12 moments to mean anything. So in a way, I sort of, that's, that's my own reaction. You just don't get those 12 moments without the rest of the book, if it's properly written. Of course, there are lots of bad books. Mm. Yeah. Um, oh God, well, once again, I'm on the fence. I, I completely uh, take Robert's point that you, yeah, you can't, it's not like you can just uh, fill it out, the, the, those bits. But uh, I think, again, I, I share David's impatience with this. And sometimes I feel, in a way, that the, the whole, that's so... So much of what people go to novels for now, it's a, it's a pleasure that I'm just not interested in, um, in having. Uh, I wish I could remember which one it was. It was one of the long-listed Booker books this year. And it was, uh, I remember reading it and I could see, yeah, this is good, this is good, this is good. And I could see that it was ticking all those how a novel should work boxes. And of course, it, for me, it just bored the crap out of me. Um, and I felt that... Um, at that point, I was I was absolutely of the the sort of Stephen Stephen Freer's uh, position. Uh, but again, I don't want to diminish the importance of the kind of narrative story. So something like um, another you know great book. We need to talk about Kevin. There, I'm just swept uh, swept along with that. And as Robert said, that's that's a book which is absolutely absolutely not reducible to these um, to put it crudely bullet points at all. But I mean, sh coming back to this idea of connective tissue, surely, I mean, you know, it's one uh, making a film of a book is a very particular operation to carry out on it, and inevitably you're cutting out what the the whole texture and spirit of the thing is. I uh, I am currently just finishing adapting a Woodhouse novel for a musical. Uh, um, Gosh, is there any end to your talents? <laughs> no. But it's been an extremely interesting thing for exactly that reason because Woodhouse is a marvellous plotter. And, it, the, you, what, and the thing about this book is it unfolds with... Part of the joy of reading it is the way the plot... It, uh, unticks itself with a beautiful clockwork plot mm. and that's one of the things you want to keep in a musical however if you're writing a musical the amount of plot you can use in a musical and a musical can contain is negligible uh, so if you're adapting that what you want to retain is the sense of this complicated clockwork plot unticking uh, but you just can't use the plot that Woodhouse has used because mm. it just is impossible. So we've had to write a completely different story. Uh, we, we've had to go, now, what's the, what's the big thing that we need to keep? The central romance, these characters are lovely and brilliant, and they come together after a clockwork plot which gets these people there and produces this amount of problem for this person, and they'll cut that bit out and that bit out there, and then we will try and produce a totally different clockwork plot that, we can f that will give the sense of being complex and unfolding in the same poetic way as it does in the book, but that really contains eight beats rather than 40 beats. Mm -hmm. And so that the, each different form you use has different demands. And so to get to the 12 points that, you, that are the reason for doing it, mm -hmm. to, you can only do that if you keep the mood of the thing and to keep the mood of the thing, you might have to use a totally different 
sort of connective tissue. That's really interesting. Jeff? Um, I don't, I do, all I wanted to really you, uh, say was just one word, really, which I, I don't know if it's come up before. I mean, it's this thing of traction. Uh, I really, I, I'm really not interested in plot, but um, I'm struck by the way that you need, uh, by, um, you have to really be an exceptional writer if you're not making any kind of, uh, uh, if you're not deriving any power at all, if your book is not, um, sort of uh, driven by some sort of narrative and it seems to me what, what writers are after is just something to give what they're writing some kind of traction and plot it seems to me is the, the crudest form of, of that of course where you're just flipping the, the pages to find out uh, what happens next and in a way I think in a, uh, probably the, gr the greater the intelligence and the greater the stylistic input the less, uh, the less sort of narrative traction you, you need. Um, but then, of course, you've got to, I mean, if you want to, you know, if you really want to, to uh, I suppose, you know, so uh, David was talking about, you know, the 12 bits, but, uh, you know, in these books of aphorisms where you're just, you've got maybe 200 pages of, 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 of those little bits, well, then you have to be uh, on the scale of Choran or something like that, and it's, uh, you know, God, I mean, how many people can, 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 manage, can manage that? You wrote very interestingly about Laurie Moore in that context, mm. the context of not using plot, plot not being her driver, mm. and saying she was hovering on the, on the edge of greatness, which seemed to be partly because she didn't need to call on those sort of tropes. <coughs> yeah, actually, and you're, you, that's, uh, I'm so glad you've said that, Claire, because that's reminded me of the other thing that is so important, which is actually the thing that always determines it for me. And so the thing that I love about Laurie Moore, it's why I'll, why I'll always read her no matter what, it's that thing of voice and tone, isn't it? So I think, um, you know, if... Uh, if the if the if the writer's voice kind of engages you, then again you're you're willing to uh, to settle for less uh, for less where eagles dare style narrative narrative excitement, and that's a completely subjective thing. I've just written this uh, thing which I worry will will uh, result in a fatwa descending on me about uh, about my personal allergy to David Foster Wallace. Ooh. Um, Ooh. Yeah, it is risky, isn't it? Um, <laughs> So uh, erase that from the, the, the records. Um, but yes, and that's an entirely, uh, that really is an entirely subjective thing. You know that kind of thing you sometimes hear, I don't like your tone or the other. You know, you just sometimes you like people's tones and it's not really a critical, uh, it's not really a critical or, um, ev uh, you, it's not something you can even e evaluate, I don't think. You either like it or, or you don't. You, so. you, you had a, a very, Jeff had a very interesting line in a thing that I don't know whether you, you might have seen on the Guardian website, which was a, a ten rules from writers when we went around to lots of writers and asked them what their ten rules were. And one of Jeff's, in fact, number three, was don't be one of those writers who sentence themselves to a lifetime sucking up to Nabokov. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, a, a phrase that often comes to me in sort of a cliche in America, but it comes back to me a lot in some of Robert's and Jeff's justification for these ancient war horses is, it, it, to me, it's always about be, the game being worth the candle. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, it's a really lovely game, but in what sense is there emotional and intellectual and psychological payoff and a, a way through it all for me is what I call in reality hunger and generally is, is what I call literary collage that so many of the books I want to argue for, the books I try to write, 
books I read, etc., are books which solve this. Of I mean, I like Jeff's term traction a lot, but there's, as Jeff also said, there's a w there are many ways to get traction, and the lowest common denominator way is plot. And I'm terribly excited by works that get traction through the orchestration of theme rather than the elaboration of plot. And so many of the books I want to go to the mat for are works like uh, Maggie Nelson's Bluets or Sarah Manguso's The Guardians, Simon Gray's four-volume Smoking Diaries, uh, Leonard Michael's Shuffle, uh, David Markson's last four books, um, books like that in which they, works of literary collage that, as Nietzsche said, he said, you know, I want to write in ten sentences what it takes someone else to write in a book, or rather, what it takes someone else not to write in a book. <laughs> and I, I'm terribly interested in every paragraph earning its weight mm. as psychic and emotional and intellectual power. That there isn't a sense in which, um, does anyone have a copy of my book by chance? No, <laughs> somebody no. borrowed mine. Um, but anyway, there's, there's a passage in the collage chapter in which I talk about sort of the difference between no, the novelistic apparatus in which sort of one sort of, of waits for, say, the end of Joyce's The Dead, in which sort of finally we get this incredibly beautiful epiphany about the snow being general all over. Ireland. I'm interested in trying to push those those epiphanies into virtually every paragraph. Mm -hmm. And can again, I, can this pushes. Sure. Can I just stop you there? Because I'm sure that th this will come up again. Mm -hmm. I just want to. I'm aware that we need to get some audience questions in, and I wanted Robert to sure, read because I want Robert to just put a. Um, uh, to, to put um, a piece of what I consider to be really interesting fictional mm. writing, so to read a very short bit from the very beginning of the Kilburn Social Club, his, his novel, um, in which he's introducing um, one of the main characters who's a, a South, South African footballer, freedom fighter turned professional footballer. And why I was particularly struck by it was um, that I grew up in Nigeria, and uh, as I was explaining in the green room before, I have a vocabulary that is, comes from Nigeria that I apply to England, and sometimes it comes out at inappropriate moments, and people don't understand what I'm talking about. And so this little bit absolutely got that for me, and I think it, it is something that fiction can do that possibly nonfiction doesn't offer. Okay, I'll, I'll just read it. Well, uh, you just yeah, read yeah, it. I'll just read it. Uh, Zombie was the other man walking home alone. His real name was Terrible Zondeki, and he was not the kind of hero other footballers are. In spite of what the English might call the warmth, he wore his long leather coat and a dark woolly hat. He had found that when he dressed like this and looked down, no one ever seemed to recognise him, and the thought gave him power. He felt like Kamau, the owl, who was born when the eagle fought with her shadow. Zombie loved to walk, to feel the distance disappear under his short, elastic stride. But when he was with Achilles, he always had to take a taxi. Tonight, though, he could walk, and he could hardly contain the singing in his legs, the risen blood that he had forced into stillness when he was talking to the reporter half an hour ago, and which must find an outlet. 
If he could have done so without attracting attention, he would have run to East Kilburn. He turned north without looking at a map or street name. Zondi never got lost. He had lived in the city for many years now, and he had drawn its landscape secretly in his mind, from the basking hippopotamus Hampstead, whose head was Primrose Hill, down to the chameleon smile of the Thames, and into the south, whose Brixton, Balham, Lambeth and Battersea were a great flock of birds, each named and known. Zondi missed the country of his childhood, parts of which he could traverse still through the stories he had learnt from his mother and his aunts. Long after the stories, he had made himself remember them, and he had used them to visit the lake in the gecko's eye, and he had found the caves at the tip of the long string of low bluffs that had made the monkey's tail. But the living country was dying now, along with his people, and all that was left was geography and his own pathetic private version of how they thought. What sense was it to fix the A5 as the route by which the buffalo migrate, or picture Oxford Street as a procession of ants carrying leaves? He had distilled his culture into a mnemonic. Thank you. Um, Jeff, that mm. is not clichéd writing, is it? Oh, no, no, it's... It, it's God, this, I'm not going to fall for that... Uh, for that <laughs> um, no, um, uh, I, I haven't read Robert's book. Uh, that seemed to me great, um, but... Uh, that's I mean, nothing. It's a non. It's um. It's not a. I mean, what am I trying to say? It's. I mean, what's. What what point are you making, Claire? <laughs> you, I mean, I'm making. I'm making. Okay, I'm going to now attack might, you. That with, might be uh, one of the eight good bits. I'm going to now. I'm, I'm now going to attack you with your rule for writing fiction number eight, ah. which you've actually referred to already, which is beware of cliché. Many novels, even quite adequate ones, are clichés of form, which conform to clichés of observation. Mm. Now, I think that that is an example of where a novel is not. Bringing, it's not a cliche of observation. It's saying this person looks at this thing in a unique way, mm -hmm. which the novelist can summon up, and it continues to be a, go through the novel. Zondi just sees things slightly differently because of where he's coming from. Sure, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I, I think in my opening remarks, I completely allowed for the possibility of such a, of such a book being great. David maybe didn't in his. Uh, in his extreme, in his fundamentalist way. It's, I suppose what I'm getting at is about truth. You know, you talk about, it's one of the things you talk about, is worth it, where is truth to be found, the truth of what we are, our experience, where we are, what our observation is. And I think there is a form of truth that the novel can get at, which is truth mm. to the inside of somebody's mind, that other forms perhaps, it is a very, it's very good at doing that. Uh, that seems wrong to me. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I would, I would, I'd want to push back very hard against that in the sense that, I mean, I too share Jeff's and your admiration of that paragraph or two. Obviously, it's really good writing. But I'm not sure how you mean that the novel gains access to human consciousness better or even remotely as good as either the essayistic novel such as Proust or Musil or the, the poetic essay. Isn't that a poetic essay in a way, in, in the, the way that it's putting that, that man's experience? Sort of, but I think the motor of novel, as Jeff was saying a little bit earlier, is so much you know, the motor of essay is thought, the motor of the novel is is narrative and so much of what drives a novel. I haven't had a chance to read a Robert's novel yet either, but I guess a lot of what I'm interested in is 
what Andrew Motion calls an absolute hot wire to feelings. Mm -hmm. And in that way, the essay and the poem are oddly linked. That I'm terrible, I guess I'm very impatient, you know, and, and maybe it goes to age, as Jeff said. I mean, I'm not an old codger, but, you know, I'm 54. I think maybe a year or two older than Jeff. Yeah. And I'm very interested in this hot wire to feelings. I just love that phrase of, of Andrew Motion, who for some reason I feel like citing here. <laughs> and that is what I want. I want, you know, something like, you know, as much as I admire that passage, it strikes me as okay, and therefore what? You know, sort of like, you know, it's, it's a beautiful passage that does not unnerve me. You know, I'm very interested in discomfiture, in sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of existential vertigo. And I want writing to get there, and the works that I tend to espouse our works in, which are working incredibly hard in every paragraph to get there. Now, yes, uh, th there is an element, there, there's another issue here which is about having your cake and eating it, isn't there? <laughs> I mean, um, wanting to do all lots of different things at the same time and not committing to any one, one thing. Because yeah. I, I, want, I want to get the effect, I think, that you talk of. I want to get to a sort of profound emotional effect. But I'm happy to take time doing it. And, I th and, and it's a matter of taste whether you want the hot wire that gets mm -hmm. you there in one mm -hmm. line or you like reading a long novel in which, you can, yeah. in which these effects uh, take more time to develop. And that is just a taste thing. I, I, think one of the, I, th I do think that one of the issues which reality hunger doesn't engage with and is a very interesting issue th to talk about is the degree to which uh, there is, readers do not agree in, in terms of popularity. Read the, the novels that just look at the novels that sell in huge numbers, and many of them are long. That's not a, that's not to say that many of them are good, but many of them are long, and that is something that I think you have to engage with if you're if you're saying that our society needs things to be short and momentary. And you just look at the look at the go with the dragon tattoo. Now that's um, we're not, without any discussion of the quality of it. Mm -hmm. There is there is a hunger for story as much as there is a hunger for reality. And, yeah. uh, and I think that that's an interesting and important thing that you have to engage with. Yeah, I think when you see people on the tube, you know, reading, a, reading away, and what people are, are, are getting from those, uh, from those books, and they tend to be novels, is that the thing is they take you from where you are, all crunched up on the horrible tube, to this, to this other world, and you're completely immersed in it. That's great. I just wanted to say that although David very modestly cited um, that phrase of Andrew Motions, there's a much better description of what I'm after from, uh, from, from writing, which I believe is from David, but you never know because he's filched so much from other people. This idea, what he's I want... He's probably filched it from you and you filched it back again. <laughs> <laughs> but I like this idea of what he calls, I believe it's uh, David, uh, a deep plumbing of consciousness. Uh, and that is uh, something which it seems to me you can have either in that, in a very, very abbreviated, aphoristic way, Chura, Nietzsche, this kind of stuff, or I guess you also get it at this unbelievably slow pace of, uh, of say, I don't know, the Magic Mountain, some, some, something like that. C can I just ask, can we go on till, till 40, till 22? 
Oh, we have to stop at half past. Okay, I'm going to open it up to the floor. Well, how, so about, how about Jeff's passage that he was... Well, I, want to, I was going shall to... We, shall we read that or shall we go okay. on? Okay, well, there's one, there's one little... Okay, before we just stop, there's one little passage that I wanted Jeff to read, which is actually Jeff talking about D.H. Lawrence, who Jeff is, has written a lot about and is obviously very engaged with. Um, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll just read this very quickly. It may or may not... So think uh, of your questions now, because we don't have that much time. <laughs> okay. As time goes by, we drift away from the great texts, the finished works on which an author's reputation is built, towards the journals, diaries, letters, manuscripts, jottings. This is not simply because, as an author's stature grows posthumously, the fund of published texts becomes exhausted and we have to make do with matter that was never intended for publication. It's also because we want to get nearer to the man or woman who wrote these books. A curious reversal takes place. The finished works serve as a prologue to the jottings. The published book becomes a stage to be passed through, a draft en route to the definitive pleasure of the notes, the fleeting impressions, the sketches in which it had its origin. Okay, lots to, lots to ask questions about. Who's going to be the first person? One over there. We've got roving mics. Is anybody else? Oh, there's one. Hi, thank you. Um, I, I just had one tiny observation and one question, the observation being if you think writing and literary stuff is bad for being ancient, try being in theater, first of all, <laughs> um, and doing the kind of work you're interested in, David. <laughs> um, and the other, the question is, do you think there's something, because as I was listening, there's two things. There's one is you kept talking about clockwork, different people. Clockwork. I'm wondering, clockwork, it just clocks kept coming up, <laughs> okay. and traction, but clocks as well, and I was just wondering if the issue is, you know, do you want to see a really nice clock, or do you want to ask why do you build a clock in the first place, which seems to be part of the, the dialectic here, and also mm -hmm. whether it's something about philosophy and pleasure, you know, because... David's stuff seems to be more about philosophy or, or the desire to get underneath something. Or, and this is a huge generalization, I apologize. But, but Robert's stuff seems to be more about the pleasure of reading. You know, and, and, and I'm just wondering whether there's something you can address there between those two. David. I think that's interesting. I think you captured well two important points of the different perspectives that we have. Regarding the clock, I don't know, it's probably because I'm obsessed with seeing the clock this afternoon. I can't wait to see the Markley clock film, which Dyer endlessly demands that I go see. So I'm eager, perhaps clock imagery has insinuated itself into our discussion in that sense. But um, I think it's not so, I think that's an interesting point, kind of a modernist or pre-modernist view that wants to build a clock versus a late modernist or, or post-modernist view that wants to think about clockness. But also, it's not only clockness, but also kinds of clocks. There's a passage in the book, uh, in, in Reality Hunger, that is from the poet Robert Dana, who talks really beautifully about how time once moved in this stately grandfather clock. And then it moved to uh, a sweep second hand on our wristwatch, and now it's a digital watch, and now it's probably something else. Now most of us don't have even digital watches. I haven't worn a watch for many years. And the time itself has changed, 
And I guess I want work that's congruent now with how that we do experience home. I want every paragraph to, in that way, sort of explode. I also think your point about pleasure and something like, like wisdom is true. And some critics have called me a kind of, almost like a, a Plato banishing the poets from the Republic because they give too much pleasure and they distract us from the state. I, I hope I'm not that person, but pleasure does sort of bore me. You know, I, I'm really interested in wisdom. That is a higher pleasure. As Cynthia Osick said, entertainment does not entertain me. You know, I'm, I'm interested, I'm very aware that we're mortal beings. We are here on the earth for a very brief time, and I want to figure out as much as I possibly can. Thank you. Uh, I, I've got two things to say. One, in reverse order, I slightly, I am not that wise, probably. Um, I'm not that wise. And uh, I kind of need a bit more space, maybe, to get to an effect which is even a brief illusion of wisdom. So that's one of the reasons why I like a, to write a, no, I like to write a novel. I, you know, I sort of, I think that maybe if I earn your intimacy with a character, I can uh, then uh, make you think more deeply about things by uh, by by making that by taking that character and putting them in certain situations and seeing what they do. Uh, and which is one of the reasons I like uh, heavily perspective writing so that you're never quite sure what uh, is actually happening, you're seeing it from that writer's perspective. The other thing that I want to say is that I'm slightly, I, I, I'm backtracking from the whole thing that I said about clocks. <laughs> uh, which is, with, uh, not, uh, uh, because the danger of using clockwork as an image is that it is, uh, is that it then makes the whole process of plotting sound like uh, too predictable a thing. And one of the things, I love plot. I think it's really a very useful and interesting way of uh, gaining traction and a way that I like. But uh, I'm very frustrated by, uh, by cliched plot, by obvious signposting, by stories in which you, that was my problem. Ultimately, that was my problem with the King's Speech, is that you saw the first scene of the King's Speech. You could have written the rest of the King's mm -hmm. Speech pretty much from the first scene yourself. Mm -hmm. You knew there was not a single moment in it that was, that was a surprise after you saw yeah. the first scene. Mm -hmm. uh, and, so, and I work really hard when I, when I write stories to set things up that, you're, that do not happen in the way that you think that they're going to happen. Uh, I, just, I try not to make, do that in a mechanical way, uh, but, but that is one of the things that I do. What, the reason I use clockwork to describe uh, Woodhouse is that there is a machine-like beauty to the intricacy of his plotting uh, that is not predictable, but that is, that is part of his particular charm, and it is a sui generis charm. Jeff, do you want to come um, I think I don't have anything... Okay, uh, we'll move on. We'll move on to say. the next one. There's one up the back, and then there's one down here. Oh, where are we? Where, oh, where are we? The lady with the yellow jumper, and then the one up the back. Um... You, I, I wonder whether um, the, this impatience that you talk about uh, with plot, it seems to me that I guess from my generational standpoint, it's a result of being raised on, largely on television, on gaining instant gratification, um, increased information, and 
sort of being taught to be overly dilettante with the activities that we engage in throughout our upbringings. And you talk a lot about um, the fact that this is happening, but I was wondering whether you could um, answer how we might be able to deal with that. If, if this is happening, how are we going to deal with all this change in um, information and communication that we're getting? Is that a question for David? Um, more Choose towards your target. Robert Hudson. For, sorry? Towards Robert. Towards Robert. Uh, How do you deal with the instant well, gratification I'd be culture? really interested to know what David thinks. But <laughs> my, 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 I, I don't worry about it that much. Uh, <laughs> partly because I, uh, I think that the only honest way to produce works of art is to produce works of art that you yourself want to consume. Mm -hmm. And so I write those. Uh, the other thing is, I think it's overstated. Uh, it's very easy to... I, I don't think human nature changes that fast. And when you look at the sheer number of 12-year-olds uh, who've read all the Harry Potter books, mm. it's sort of become... You know, the millions and millions of people who've done that, it becomes slightly harder to sustain the idea that the, the young people can't endure uh, long narratives. I'm not saying they need to be that long, but, mm. uh, but, 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 but they, they can do it. And uh, I hope they keep being able to do it long enough for them to buy my books. John, Diamond, and Jeff. <laughs> Interesting, just one. Um, Jan Morris, reviewing Jeff in Venice, said, uh, the travel writer Jan Morris said that um, she pointed out that it's written in two halves, and she said one half of it was an, adv an advanced example of the post travelogue. Um, the art form that has supplanted plain travel writing. Oh, yeah. And so it seemed to me that you, you're fidgeting. You could see your novel as fidgeting between different genres. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this is something I'm very uh, interested in, really. Uh, to pick up on something David was saying, yeah, you know, we all love Ian McEwan. One of the reasons that we, we like reading Ian McEwan is because we kind of know in advance the experience we're meant to be having uh, we can see the signs, you know, we can pick up the clues, all this kind of stuff. And the experience that we're having when, we, we're, when we're reading Ian McEwan is that of reading a novel. I like the idea of uh, when you've got this thing in your hands, this book, and you're reading it, and you're kind of, you're thinking, Jesus, this thing is not behaving as, it, as it's, what is this? What is this thing? And that kind of uncertainty, it seems to me, uh, the person who's really... You know, the obvious example, Zabel, you know, those books, you really, you don't, rea you don't realize what you're, what you're reading. And it seemed to me that, just to talk about myself for a moment with that book, Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanasi, there was this completely, I mean, I, writers always think that any uh, uh, criticism of their work is stupid, but there, it seems to me that, that this book attracted a particularly stupid kind of response, which is to say, it's not a novel. It's two half books. I mean, at its most ridiculous, they were sort of claiming that actually I was so stupid that my brain was so addled that I'd actually completely forgotten that there was a woman in the first half. And it's like, oh, yeah, what happened to her? Yeah, I really should have sorted that out. I should have kept her in part two. You know, and the thing is, that is, if you like, it seems to me, is an example of a kind of really crude critical process whereby you've got this thing, this book of mine, which was this lovely, this jelly. It was, there it was, quivering away like jellies do. And it was, it was perfect in its, own, in its own way. There were these two completely separate narratives, but I insisted it was a novel because the two halves were absolutely dependent on each other, leaning on each other like that. Move that one, that collapses. And then there would be this kind of, 
critical process whereby you'd have this mold which would said sort of novel on it and you'd fit it, you'd slap it down on the book and of course the jelly you split it in half and the conclusion would be, ah, you see, that proves it's a bad novel because if it had been a good novel it would fit in here. And then you get the other mold which says non-fiction travelogue and of course you put that on another bit of the, the jelly gets carved off. And it seems to me this is the problem, reducing, uh, um, not examining a work on its own terms, in, in terms of whether it, can, it uh, functions within uh, a, as a sort of aesthetic experience of its own, but actually whether it resembles, uh, whether your sort of test plate for what a, what a book should be is, I don't know, um, Pickwick Papers or something, something like that. That really does seem to me... To, to me stupid and I very much like this idea uh, talking about place I like these books if you imagine books in terms of places where you sort of don't know where you are you don't know where you're meant to go you don't know what the what the main what the main sites are which the important bits are I like that kind of um, destabilizing and perhaps experience. to take it back to the questioner it, this is what is reflecting our reality and that's the reality you're talking about of fidgeting between different mediums and different and that is why this kind of book is so prevalent Yes, absolutely, no. absolutely. Let's move on to the next question. Hi, yeah, I mean, I found the, uh, the discussion about where the novel's going and the place of the novel at the moment re really interesting, but I felt that one of the things that's, that's sort of been left out of the dialogue has been about race and gender, um, because one of the issues about experimenting with the novel is about um, who is allowed to experiment. I mean, most of the the texts that you've cited so far have been written by white men, for example. And um, you're also talking about texts that are written in the English language. So there is a lot more experimentation, for example, in French, um, you know, just, just to give one, just to give one, one other language. But um, I don't know about you know, other people in the audience, but I know in my own writing, I've been translated into French and into Swedish. But it's much more difficult to actually get published in English if you are experimenting, if you're sort of seen as the other. Um, so I'm intrigued to know what, what the authors on the panel think about that. There was one very interesting book, actually, that um, we longlisted for the, for the Guardian First Book Award last year, which was Black Mamba Boy by Nadifa Mohammed. And she was using, drawing on a sort of West African choral tradition, and her structure was drawn from that. And we, we have reading groups involved, including lots of Waterstones reading groups. And it was really interesting how many people just said, but it, it doesn't, it's not, does not structured like a novel. And you said, no, it's not. It's structured like she wants it to be structured. This is a proper structure for this novel. Um, and then other people completely got it and were completely won over by it. Um, sorry, that's a bit of an aside. Sure. I, I think, you know, you raised some interesting questions for me, and they're ones that certainly I think about. And uh, I think, for one, that so many of the writers I'm drawn toward are writers of, of collage. And a, a huge number of them are, in fact, women writers. I mean, a lot of the writers I mentioned in my book and a lot of the, the writers I've actually cited this morning are women, uh, Maggie Nelson, Sarah Manguso, Amy Fusselman, Amy Hempel. Um, and <clears throat> a lot of the writers I like the most of late tend to be women. Um, they seem to be doing really interesting things with form in a way that I do think it's sort of interesting that 
that perhaps men are more drawn toward a kind of linear narrative. And I'm, I'm, I'm always drawn back to this idea of, of Walter Benjamin who says all great works of literature um, should either dissolve a genre or invent one. And so all the works that I'm tr seeming to push for, I, Jeff spoke about it really beautifully about this sort of jelly metaphor. And um, a lot of those writers are women from, from, uh, from post-colonial cultures. Uh, do you know the book Dick T? Is that a book that you know? Or, you know, there's so, I mean, I, I haven't mentioned all of them for which I apologize, but uh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very drawn to many of, of such books and many of them. I would say maybe even most of them tend to be written by women. Either of you have anything to add? I, only that I, it's not a, not particularly. I mean, I, I, I work on lots of books, and I, I don't worry about the issue very you much. You can't help being a white male. Can't, I can't help being a white male. <laughs> but I also can't help sometimes writing in the voice of women or in the voice of uh, black characters. That's the kind of writing I do, but... You know, you hope you imagine it okay. Lovely. We've been given a little bit of an extension. There's a gentleman there. A couple more. We'll keep them quite brief. Okay. Um, I'd just like to uh, celebrate the uh, different forms of expression that uh, are possible these days. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for example, uh, Murakami's uh, work manages to be um, uh, uh, a description of a, a guy going through various processes, um, psychological processes. There's some uh, plot there. But uh, also, he's saying something about um, the individual in relation to Japanese society. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, uh, for example, in the film uh, um, realm, American Beauty uh, is beautifully written, um, and uh, but also works as a as a visual experience as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I think basically what I'm what I'm saying is that uh, whatever medium is uh, being uh, used. Uh, it has to be uh, really well done. And mm -hmm. uh, you're talking about flabbiness. Uh, it can't, it can't uh, exist uh, um, and, and be um, uh, celebrated. Uh, it, it has to be uh, uh, cut out and, and it has to be sharp. Mm. Very good. Yeah. We, we, do we need to answer that? I think that's a very nice, yeah, elegant yeah, statement, yeah, yeah. which yeah, sums up something, something of what we. I can't see how we, anybody could do anything <laughs> than just. Let's sort of go for it. Let's try and fit in one more. <laughs> My question is for David. Uh, if we maintain David Foster Wallace's aim or ambition um, that fiction is, is there to bridge the gap of this essential aloneness that in part defines our condition, um, how do you think a reimagined sort of epistemology or phenomenology replaces that or indeed it, it accomplishes that same goal, which I take to be quite a good one uh, and, and a necessary one? Uh, that might be beyond my pay grade. Um, <laughs> let me see if I can put that in my own terms. I, I think I was hearing everything you were saying. Basically, you were saying that I'm returning a little bit to Wallace and this idea that the most serious writing overtly attempts to construct a bridge across human loneliness. And then I somehow the, your point, I think, was I think you were asking me specifically how does a certain kind of ambitious nonfiction do, do that? Is that I fair? That's rather a dumbing down of your question, but. Basically, I think it's a good ambition to bridge this loneliness. Right. And how does me 
place this annual fiction that I think is so important. Hmm. Well, I guess for, for, for one thing, I'd want to kidnap a little bit of what Wallace said. In the interview, he actually goes on. This is, a, if, you, if you want to look it up, it was a, a 1996 interview with him and Laura Miller of Salon Magazine. Anyway, she asks him, what's so great about writing? Why does writing matter? And he ends up answering that question that we're all alone and writing can assuage human loneliness. And then he goes on, sort of bafflingly, to me to say, and oh, by the way, in fiction, there are all these contrivances, all these elaborate mechanisms, all these, these fictional characters whom we have to empathize with. And don't worry, we can get past those hoops. And I want to say, at least I have a, you know, a damnably difficult time getting past those hoops. Hence, I wrote this book, Reality Hunger. And I actually agree with Jeff that I don't think David Foster Wallace is a very interesting fiction writer. I think he's a really great essayist. And I, I love him as a writer of nonfiction, but the two big novels do almost nothing for me. But I think, I mean, the way that I, I see the operation happening, if I'm understanding your question and able to put them in terms that make sense to me, it's that a lot of the excitement of the work has to do with two things. One, the excitement, again, as Jeff alluded to, of not knowing, being in a slightly difficult to define department store, caught between floors, being in a somewhat blackened room and not being able to quite feel the walls. That puts us, that puts us in an extraordinarily stimulating, vertiginous space. And secondarily, and perhaps maybe even more importantly to me, is that the essay form depends upon extraordinary candor on the narrator's part. And the reader can either meet the reader, the reader can either meet the writer halfway and acknowledge his or her own humanness, their own loneliness, their own freakishness and thereby create an extraordinary moment between writer and reader. Or the reader can, as so many critics often do, retreat into a kind of loftier than thou mm -hmm. position in which they deny their, their own humanness, their own f fallibility, and judge the writer as wanting and someone upon whom they get well on. They sort of use the writer to establish their own moral and psychic superiority. Not that I'm naming any critics right now. But there was this one, no, but, but, um, <laughs> but um, so I think, I hope that answers your question. I mean, I, the, the, the excitement of the form is that it depends upon the writer and, and reader, first of all, acknowledging their own confusion, and second of all, uh, being able to meet halfway in this extraordinarily candid space. I Thank would you. love to hear how other people we've might been answer Very quickly, because we're just about to, we've already been given an extension, we've got three minutes. Should we do some other questions? We haven't got any time for any more questions, I'm afraid. Um, do you want to say just the last word? Last uh, word? I was just so relieved that question was directed at David, not <laughs> me. <laughs> uh, I, 
I, I also. Uh, you were also very I relieved. I was also really relieved about that. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming. Two things, two little points. One is that there will be a signing afterwards. The other is that we do have a Guardian podcast with David, and we also discussed the ten rules for writing fiction, which we did with novelists in the in the paper. And you can find that on Guardian.co.uk books um, quite easily. Thank you very much for coming for coming along, and thank you to our panelists. Thank you, Brilliant, Very nice.